Hi, this is Steve Poor, and you're listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Christina Lambright is Senior Director of Strategic Growth at Perkins Coey. She's had a fascinating legal career, serving various roles within the industry. After practicing in commercial litigation for nearly a decade, Christina became a research specialist at Vincent & Elkins, where she also assisted with budgeting, seeking more involvement with driving decisions and revenue at the firm. She ventured into strategic pricing under the guidance of her colleague, Toby Brown, the firm's first director of pricing and a friend of the podcast. Christina went on to work at Aiken Gump, where she developed the firm's strategic pricing and legal project management efforts. She has continued with pricing and LPM work at Perkins Coey, though her primary responsibility is leading the sourcing and acquisition of lateral partner candidates to meet the firm's strategic goals. Additionally, Christina is a founder and board member of the Legal Value Network, which drives deeper partnership and collaboration between legal organizations in order to accelerate the evolution of the industry. In our conversation, Christina talks about her journey from commercial litigation to strategic growth, building trust with lawyers and clients, how she and her team at Perkins Coie approach lateral hiring, and how the Legal Value Network has grown since its inception. Thanks to Christina for making the time. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Christina, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Stephen. Great to be here. It's great to see you again. You are currently Senior Director of Strategic Growth at Perkins Coie. Let's talk a little bit about the journey that got you there. Sure. Then we'll talk about what that means and sort of thoughts on pricing and strategic growth. You started out as a lawyer. I did. Started out as a litigator. What made you want to go to law school and be a lawyer? Great question. Um, Really, in high school, I was not struggling to figure out what I wanted to do. I know I wanted to go to college. I know um, there were certain aspects of different Classes I liked, history, English, et cetera. But we had a one of our representatives um, from the state came in and was he was actually a judge, a local judge. He was a juvenile judge. And so he had talked a little bit about what he does as a judge, how he evaluates certain cases. So it was it was very interesting to me how he one was doing the work he was doing, but also he's doing it a bit differently. And the way that he worked on sort of recidivism and prevention and, and helping a lot of these juveniles get, you know, the help they need, um, understanding their situation. So that was really appealing to me. And so aside from just the decision making and, and sort of deciding what happens with people um, and legally, it was just a, a, a fascinating job. And he was a really dynamic speaker. I think that was some of it. So I really went to law school. I wanted to be a judge. That's why I went to law school. And interestingly enough, I worked at a title company who was the uh, owned by the uncle of our county judge, Robert Eccles. And I was able to go in and do some shadowing um, of him and his role and realized very quickly, I'm not sure this is what I want to do. <laughs> <laughs> the politics involved and that sort of thing. And, and as I've learned over time and had friends who have run for office, um, it's just it's a different world, I would say. So I shifted over to now I'm going to focus on doing litigation, and that seemed very natural to me. But originally to be a judge, that's why I went to law school. You know, it, it, it's interesting. We've had a number of guests that have had those moments. Uh, uh, you, you had it with your judge coming in. Others have had similar moments that sort of have shaped their, at least the start of their careers. Isn't it interesting the way that happens? It is. One moment in time. But 
people are put in your in your life for a season or a reason. So that that was put for you know essentially someone to drive me. And, and candidly, he was a, um, a friend of my grandfather's who worked at um, the city for a very long time where I grew up. And so actually got to spend some time with him after that. So I believe he was put there to help me. Yeah, sort of direct and guide you know what my future was going to be. So meant to be. Oh, that's nice. So you come out of law school and you're going to be a trial lawyer. I am. Commercial litigator. Yes. Which you did for almost 10 years. You did for nine years. About, yeah, eight or nine years. Yeah, it was it was exciting. It was interesting. It was a lot of travel, a lot of people engagement, depositions. I can't tell you how many depositions I've taken. Um, time in the courtroom, which is a lot of fun. I found it enjoyable and made a great network there. But after that, you know, that amount of time, you decide, you come to a crossroads where you want to, I want to be a partner and I want to keep going in this journey, or do I want to do something different? And you chose it, you chose a different path. I chose a different path. And again, I met, you know, someone through my network was talking about their um, father who was a law librarian. <laughs> and I said, what's, what is that? And he said, well, it's, you may recall, you know, teaching legal research and writing and in school, in law school, you know, those are law librarians and they help you in the, the law school. But he was working for Benson and Elkins. He was running the legal um, research center there at B&E. And so I talked to him. He had a, a, a JD and he also had a master in what was the library information science um, back in the day. I decided that was interesting enough that I'm like, well, this I could stay in a law firm. I have an option to go to law school, teach legal research. That seemed really interesting to me the education part. And so I got my master's. It it became information science at the time. That was the the title of the degree, which is information organization and all of those things, which I liked. Did practicums in both B&E, which was doing research, and then also at SMU Law Library. And what I quickly realized that uh, academia has a very different pace than law firm. Yes, it does. (laughs) And I wasn't I wasn't used to that. I'm very deadline driven, very, you know, sense of urgency. Um, it's not that it didn't exist. And the law school was very different. And sort of the publications at the time were moving from print to electronic. So there was a lot more of that digital research, which was interesting. And I could do more of it remotely. But you miss that engagement with people. Um, and that was happening in the law firm as well. So when I actually I ended up taking a role at B&E within that research center, uh, working with the director, primarily on um, helping to shift a lot of that over to electronics and on the budgets. She was not, you know, a fan of math. So, and I had done budgets as a litigator. I had to. So I would help her develop the budgets for the annual, go to management, help defend them. Um, so that, that was a lot of fun. And my goal was to run a law library or a research center and a law firm. And then someone joined our firm who was um, our first director of pricing. That was Toby Brown. <laughs> joined. And then, uh, Toby, a, a prior guest on the podcast. Prior guest. I knew who he was. He was an influencer out in a number of legal sort of associations, one being the, the librarians there, the research folks. I um, knew him well. He was, he'd come in and talk about, you know, how librarians and how other people in the, in the operations side of the firm could get involved with decisions and driving decisions and revenue. And that was fascinating to me. So I approached him and said, if you have some projects you'd like some help with, I'd love to help. And he said, what's your background? And I had an opportunity to go work with him in my first pricing role. Didn't know what pricing was. Understood what it was, but didn't understand the job per se. 
and just training from there. And so building out pricing and the function within B&E and then eventually transitioning to Aiken Gump and building out pricing and then practice management, a portion of that at Aiken Gump and then shifting over to Perkins where I am now, which building out pricing, legal project management, and then taking on the lateral partner acquisition and integration um, three and a half years ago, almost four. Let's stick with the pricing function because you've been through it for a lot of the evolution of the pricing function. You've done it now a dozen years or so, and that's a period of growing sophistication of pricing and pricing analytics. And you say you didn't know much about pricing when you started, and there there's sort of two sides to pricing, right? One is the numbers, you know, how you create a structure. The other side is the people side, right? The partners, the clients, the stakeholders in it, who you've got to Explain what the numbers were. And I assume you're you're now learning both sides of the equation. Which one was more challenging to learn and to deal with, the numbers or the people? People. <laughs> yeah. That doesn't surprise me to hear you say that. Number Numbers are easy. I mean, when it comes down to it, when I said I didn't know anything about pricing, I did. I was doing budgets. I was working with that. So that part came more naturally to me, the analytics and you know, Excel does a lot. There's technology that does a lot, but it's more thinking about what is what is necessary here and what's going to work in this situation. I think be, being a lawyer helped me in a, a number of regards. One, I understood the language they were speaking, but also there was a certain level of trust with me going in, having my JD, and then saying, okay, well, this person kind of knows where I am, knows may know my situation. Not always, but it was getting, it was building the trust with the partners that took time. And allowing them, you know, to open open up and say, yes, I'm willing to try what you're doing because we didn't have as much connection with the clients at that point. We have a lot more now. And so it was, how do we get, you know, to the partner, demonstrate our value and then have them bring us in either to the conversation or let them know they can trust us to help with this. And that is relationship building and trust building, which to me, I, I, I enjoy. Right. How do you deal with the dynamic, I, I presume you've seen it, of people not recognizing their own value they're bringing to the client and being afraid of having these conversations with the client. I assume you've encountered that dynamic, assuming that's the case. How do you sort of deal with that very human and natural dynamic? Sure. I've never experienced that, Stephen. <laughs> you've worked with different partners than I have over the years. <laughs> it's very interesting, the people who are some of the smartest people you know, I've ever met who doubt themselves and it's not doubt. I think it's fear. There's some fear in, in, in losing a client in fear of, of raising something they're not comfortable raising. There are a couple different ways. So one, you can say, we talked about, you know, their, their peers in the market. Like we know for a fact, so-and-so is charging X, Y, Z or is pricing at this price. And they feel more comfortable when there's a market comparison. Like, oh, well, that's if that's what others are doing, that's fine. I think showing them here's how your work or your contribution is valued, you know, to the business more so than someone else and your impact and what you're bringing is worth it. And here's why. Not all of them are receptive to that. I think it's the fear and the relationship they have with the client. Most who are comfortable, it doesn't mean they're saying the right words or saying the right language. That's exactly what we're there for but they are not nervous to bring up either the challenge or the concept and that partner and that client appreciates it. Like we are business partners. Thank you for raising it. Yes. I want to work with you. And so the more they do that and it's successful, 
the more confident they become and like, okay, I'm not going to discount my rate every time. I do deserve this. It's a time factor, Stephen. Some are more than others, and it's different tactics for helping them understand or see their value for that particular client and just generally. I know that you've put together different and more innovative fee packages apart from just hourly rate billing. And I assume that some of them require management of the particular matter or the portfolio or the particular case in a different way than the partner or the stakeholder may be used to. How do you manage that conversation? Because that's that's getting people to change the way they're operating a successful business. And that's always a challenge, isn't it? It is. This is one of the things I'll always say, and you'll hear me say, you can spend a lot of time on a pricing engagement and spend hours and analytics time, but the partner time, making sure scope is right, pricing is right. And then if you, if you leave it to the partner to manage, it can all fall apart. If you don't have LPM, you don't have legal project management, you don't have some resource them there for either them to manage it themselves effectively or business professionals helping them manage it. You spend a lot of time and, and taking a lot of risk and letting that move that direction. So what we've done is there's a pricing, um, there's a matter that's over a certain amount. It automatically goes to our LPM department. That's sort of what we've conditioned our partners to understand and to know. At first, they're hesitant. I, I don't need help. I don't need this. The more that you give them resource or what I'd say management, it's more resource, but it, reporting is some. Um, what I'd say actionable information to help them manage and the transparency was getting in terms of what the need or the desire on the client side just grew and grew as, as the years move forward. They were excited to share, like, here's exactly where we are. I know exactly where we are. Cause that to me for them was less painful than talking about a write-off or having to deal with that situation. So it was really more a risk, a reward thing. Like if you, if you have this information, there's one accountability. But also you have the tools to manage it. Not every partner is fully engaged, but most have adopted that, yes, we will let LPM come in, help us with reports, help us with dashboards so I can see and report to the client. It's more a tool for them to speak intelligently to their client and, and be able to respond to their client effectively. If you can buy them on that, on that value, then they're, they're in. Some prefer no. Right. <laughs> There's no 100% adoption. That's what I tell the team. There's not, please don't aim for 100% adoption. We won't achieve that. You talk about transparency in the reporting. How has that function evolved over your 10, 12, 13 years? Because it's obviously far more sophisticated now. And I'm sure it was at the beginning. It is. I think a lot of it um, is tied to like data structuring and, and sort of coalition of all that data together and synthesizing it. That's been, at least in my experience, biggest challenge going into an organization and the way the data is organized and trying to get that data into a format that is one, um, (laughs) can be digested by the lawyer, but then also articulated back to the client. How I've seen it evolve, it's more internally and providing that to our partners and be able to manage and and speak about specific matters. It's, It's more the client asking now. We would like a dashboard. We would like a platform where we can come in with you <laughs> and see what's happening. And that's creating more, that's driving more change on the law firm side because then the, the time has to be in sooner. Someone's got to be monitoring that. And the partner, frankly, doesn't want to chase down the associate that hasn't put in their time. So they will gladly have a business professional step in and say, okay, so it's been a week or it's been two days client's going to look at this. We may not have a a report coming up or a meeting coming up, 
but they can come in here at any time and they need to see exactly where we are. Most what I've seen are on the reporting side or they alleviate the administrative headache of conflicts. So for order, if we are organizing new matters or portfolios, just making sure they have an easy way to do that. But it's more on the financial and where are you and where we are in this budget. It's almost providing an LPM type resource for the client and the partners like a lot and want to just make sure it's accurate. <laughs> That's the, the driver. Is your team client facing now? Depending on the client, yes, more so than And I think that's a function of being autonomous and being in, you know, the way we were positioned within the firm, at least here. And then also when we were at Aiken, it wasn't under a CFO function. I think a lot are now, which is fine. But there are clients asking for, do you have someone on your side that's on the operations side, that's on the pricing side? There's a lot more of an ask there. So I see that happening more and more. But that was that trust building. Yes, our team is client facing. They check directly with either the ops folks or at the higher levels with our institutional clients and some of our growing clients, emerging clients, we talk directly to the relationship partner on the other side, depending on who's making those decisions. What are the communication challenges is probably the the wrong word, but as you're communicating with the client in terms of the report itself, what the data means, what reasonable expectations are, Obviously, you're going to deal with a wide range of sophistication on the client side, just like you're dealing with a wide range of sophistication on the internal side. Yes. But how has that communication evolved and and grown over the years? It really depends on the business need of the client. So if it's simple, we need to see X, Y, Z. We want to see, you know, in terms of certainty where we are, we want to see how many matters or, you know, or contracts. Depends on the business need of the client. I would say the more mature that that client legal department has has become on the ops side, the more sophisticated the ask. And I think that you know, those, those corporate legal departments having their own associations that are growing, they're teaching each other, they're developing each other. The technology has really driven a lot of that and what the ask is. It's just like talking to different partners that it's internally. It's like, we're trying to figure out what are you going to use this for? What information would you like to see from us? How are you going to use it? Because much like when partners come to us and ask for something, it's never, we're going to respond to you with data. We're going to pick up the phone and say, what result are you driving at here? What exactly are you trying to do? And because typically what they're asking for is not the data they need. So it's having, it's more about the conversation before we build anything for a client or before we put reports out for a client, you know, our accruals may be the exception is just talking about how do you plan to use this? We want to make sure that we're giving you something that's actionable on your end. It's going to help you look good to whomever your, you know, your direct supervisor is or beyond. That's going to help you, you know, drive what you're doing internally. And you have to have those conversations before you build anything. That's what our lawyers are challenged to do. Like, we've got a request. We just need to build. I'm like, but what are they trying to accomplish here? <laughs> it's the goal. Right. That's always the question people forget to ask, isn't it? They do. They're driving towards something. Some some have a clear answer. Some don't, Stephen, as you know. No, I do know <laughs> that. Yeah. So one of, one of the tricky things, in, either through your work in, in law firms or through your work with Legal Value Network, is this concept of value you're touching on. I mean, I think... At the beginning of pricing, we saw pricing being basically a repackaging of hourly billing. It just looked different, but it was basically hourly billing, largely as a result of both client demand and and internal demand. That conversation has evolved largely through the work of pricing professionals like yourself. 
and the association's like Legal Value Network. How does that value conversation come out? How, because it, it's a two-sided conversation because it, it affects how you charge and how you value the result, the outcome, the thing. How's that conversation evolved? It's depending on the client, obviously. Um, I think clients or corporate legal departments have been slow to adopt sort of that value-based pricing concept. AFAs, I think we all thought just generally, and that's based on sort of, it's an AFA, it's a fixed fee, you know, everyone traditionally knows as AFAs. We've seen growth there. We've seen growth internally. We've seen adoption externally. I think there's the management side is what's challenging for corporate legal departments and understanding, you know, how do I demonstrate XYZ is the same ROI as this 25% savings. I think that needs to evolve in terms of conversations and understanding on the corporate legal department side. I'm not saying the law firm has it figured out. They don't. In terms of adoption, (laughs) there are things that we are talking about is, you know, I know that we are super focused on the discount here and I know we're super focused on the rate piece, but let's talk about outcomes we've achieved or successes we've achieved for this particular client. We know them well. We've serviced them for 20 plus years. Here's the pattern we have seen. Maybe, you know, here's what's demonstrating we know the client well. We trust them. They trust us as we propose this and it's output results, success based results. And the quote unquote pricing is tied to that. And we've had some good adoption. It really just depends on the appetite on the other side and their willingness to take not a risk, but do something differently. So internally, what's easy to is insert it instead of pricing things based on inputs like hours, it's more output. So by contract or by, you know, it's patent fee, those sorts of things. And so what that does is on the client side, they say, I have certainty. I know exactly what I'm going to pay. And then for us, we're rewarded if we're efficient. So that's the reward. That's the unit sort of based pricing on the value side. And then, you know, you've got the results based, which is the outcome. So that's contingency. That can be a success fee. It could be an FA or it could not. It could be tied to, you know, what is the early, if we get early settlement, is there a percentage back or, you know, we get the full fee. So there's a number of ways to work it to where it looks traditional in terms of AFA, but it is really tied to results and outcomes. Um, And that's the business objectives of the client that we need to understand to be able to price that well um, in a value way or way that they understand value. One of the challenges early on is you're thinking about flat fees or unit pricing. That always irritated me was, well, we'd also like to see the hours you're putting into it. Which my response yes. was always was, but we just agreed it's going to cost X. What do you care how many hours we put into it? If we put in too many or too few, you're getting a number. Has that conversation, has that dynamic changed over the years? Has that gotten a little more sophistication? A little bit. I'm seeing, I'm seeing a turn there. And again, it depends on the trust you've built with the client and they're seeing, okay, I'm, I'm getting the value out of this. I'm okay paying and not knowing if the hours that were generated behind the scenes equated to that number. I'm like the result. It is a success or outcome based technically, if it's a settlement, et cetera. I would say that it's better than it was. The shadow well, billing. Really, <laughs> it's better than it was, but it was a lot of, you know, we want to see it so we can report on it and X, Y, Z. So giving them an, another way to report to leadership that look, we are finding value with this firm, you know, ignore the, you know, they would have charged XYZ or here's the Delta and we won. Um, they lost because they went over. Some of it's the headache of the, you know, the true ups and, you know, things that are, that don't make sense and conversations candidly that are distraction. 
is the shadow bills. It's distracting. What we what we do on our end is on us, candidly. It should be. If we do well, then great. Some have adopted that mindset. Like, I just don't have time to even look at this. <laughs> oh, you know? the good ones. The good ones. It's, it's, it's not rare, but it's not the majority, for sure. So we might get there, Stephen. Yeah, let's let's hope so. So you 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 still have pricing responsibilities, but your role has expanded into become senior director of strategic growth, which is, if I understand the the, the description, is predominantly dealing with lateral acquisitions, whether individual or groups or things. What's different about that role? How are you doing that differently than traditional law firms are doing it? Is it through the use of data? Is it through the connection with strategic vision of the organization? What what is it that's unique about that? It's a combination of what you just said. (laughs) Every firm recruits differently. And I know firms recruit where it's three people making the decision and that's, that's the decision and their strategy is their strategy. They may have a written one. They may have in their mind that they want to build out broader client relationships across the firm. And that's their strategy in certain markets. Ours was a bit unique in that when we joined, when I joined the firm in 2016, there was, there was no strategic plan in place. And 2017 was the first sort of formalized plan that was rolled out, communicated. So I consider myself lucky coming in at that time that there had been the strategic planning exercise and we had an actual plan. And the plan lined out certain beacon practices, geographies that the firm felt based on our, you know, our strengths, all of those things, what we wanted to be known as in the market, we needed to build those things out. And so coming in new and seeing, okay, we want to focus on, I'm just going to pick M&A. So focus resource and time on this. That was helpful and dedicating resource uh, for the firm. It was a change. And we also shifted from office centricity in terms of decision-making to practice group centricity. Do office and geography still matter? Absolutely. We still talk to them. They're still engaged in, in these conversations. But that was a shift for the firm in driving decisions. That's a big mindset change. It is. There was a lot of this happening all at the same time. And so spending several years on the pricing side was was helpful in understanding people, personalities, where, where certain things lived, the practices themselves. Um, it was different coming from, you know, very financially driven firm to a very West Coast tech-based firm. That was interesting, learning more. The recruiting piece is, inter- the acquisition piece is interesting. I've been involved in doing that since I was at V&E. So the reason is when partners fill out a questionnaire, they are interested, you know, recruiter has them fill out the financial information. We ask about AFAs and discounting. And our lawyers, if they were actually talking about the LPQ, wasn't sure how to ask questions. Like, we don't know how to ask questions around this fixed fee or this portfolio. Like, we don't understand. Could you ask a little a little more? And what that helped us do, one, we got in front of the lateral very early. <laughs> so they knew we were there, which is a benefit. And then we talked to them like we would one of our partners in pricing. Like, when did you develop this client? How long have you had this relationship? What sort of discounting? How are you staffing it? Leveraging, you know, leverage. That gives us an insight into profitability in some ways without really seeing that number. It's their concept of like, I'm doing all the work. I'm like, okay, that's great. So those are, those are things we take back to leadership. And so when I went, when I moved to Aiken, we did the same, but it became more where we were talking to almost every lateral. That was coming in that had portable books of business. And then Perkins was the same. How are you evaluating this? So there was not that exercise when that wasn't happening at Perkins before I, I came. And so we were building out you know, what we were doing, profitability analysis on groups, 
on individuals? Like, what did we anticipate? Did it, was it a creative or dilutive to profitability? Those were things we were making, try, trying to do on our end to show leadership. Look, this is how we're looking at these from an economics perspective. I know they're great culturally, but do they fit in with the strategic vision? You know, will it help grow profitable revenue here at the firm? And so that's been interesting. So we've all, I've always touched lateral. It's just given the opportunity to come over. I was like, oh, I don't know that that's what I do. I don't think so. <laughs> um, I'm not a recruiter. I'm not any of that. Um, it's one of the most um, political roles, like politically faced roles in the in the company when you are adding new owners to a business. There are a lot of opinions. And this firm, unlike some, is very consensus-driven. It's an open compensation system. So everyone sees. So everyone has an opinion. So it's a lot of justification leading up to it. When I took over the role, we had shifted. There was about... <laughs> There was someone in the role, I think, just recruiting. There wasn't really much of a strategy in that way. It was like, here, we're good at this. We'll take this, this geography. So our percentages were about 80% opportunistic hiring and 20% what we call strategic hiring. And so in taking on this position, shifting the focus and the resource to just like, what is our strategy? Where do we want to go? And focusing effort there, which is where the data comes in. (laughs) So looking at market, where, you know, competitors, you know, Recruiters do do a lot of the, the data collection. There's tools they use about who's moved where, expertise. We have two people that actually do the analytics for these specific searches and says, here's who we think we want to target based on the profile. Here's the pitch. You know, we work on all that with the stakeholders. And then we go out, we leverage that data to develop a pursuit strategy. And that's helpful because attorneys like data. They're like, okay, this makes sense to me. I can see all this here. And this this is why I think this makes sense for us to go, you know, sort of target and talk about. So it, it's been interesting now that we've shifted our focus in that way. Our percentage this year, I'm proud to say, in terms of opportunistic and strategic, we had 5% opportunistic and 95% strategic this year. Wow, that's fabulous. Don't ask me next year. I'm sure it'll be similar. But it was, <laughs> it was a good year. That was a, that's um, a good year. Well. So it's it's nice to use those benchmarks and say, well, here's where we were. Here's where we've become. And then management sees this process is, is working. This approach is working. And we want to continue to, to grow and dedicate resource in this space. Continue to grow the firm. So. Success does tend to build on itself, doesn't it? It does, yes. I know we're running a bit over, but if you've got a few more minutes, maybe you can talk to us about Legal Value Network. So I know you're one of the founders. Yeah, I'd love to. I know we had Toby on, but we didn't really get to that. Oh, well, shame on him. Okay. <laughs> oh, he had plenty of other things to talk about. I'm sure. Legal Value Network. Yeah, so we, we founded that organization um, or community uh, during the pandemic. So it will actually be three years old this this Friday, March 10th. Congratulations, Mazel Thank you. A difficult time to launch, but it was actually pretty beneficial for us. And, you know, we set out in, in developing the organization for a couple of reasons. One was, you know, the umbrella we were under, which was LMA, had been a great home for us. Um, we work with a lot of business development folks, marketing folks, and our pricing roles, our business ops roles. Um, and we really grew our community there. We started in 2013, so it's 10 years as well, with a conference under the LMA umbrella. 
And it grew and grew to the point where, you know, did LMA make sense? Did we need to form our own thing? And ultimately it's like, we're, we're going to develop and create a forum and a community that people can come together, share ideas, but basically drive change in the legal industry. All the people doing the things, whether it's the corporate legal departments, the law firms, the tech providers, the ALSPs, everyone has a voice and coming in. And a lot of organizations, I think, limited the voice. And then you bring guest speakers in or stars in to talk from other, other what I would say, segments of the legal industry. We wanted to bring all those people together, the thought leaders, uh, folks that were you know developing in their career. There's so many more roles and professionals in pricing, process improvement, LPM, innovation, getting all those people under one roof to share ideas. That was the mission is just bringing these people who were driving change, the change agents together, right, to drive change together and develop best practices. Right. Absolutely. So that was the mission is bringing, it's really just offering a community, Stephen. It wasn't even, you know, we want to develop a webinar or a conference. It was just bringing people together. And the pandemic was helpful to us because we were able to launch a lot of digital, you know, the webinars. So more people could start and gain, you know, attend, build, you know, sort of loyalty, if you will, to the organization, see the value and talking to other people and peers across the industry and partners that they weren't able to get to in terms of perspective. So it was a development opportunity, but a sharing opportunity. So that it's just parlayed really into that we had our first annual conference uh, last year. This will be our second in September in Chicago. So it, it's been great. It's, it's really, I think, opened the door for a lot of, it, it's say more um, people who are new, to their roles, to have exposure to folks who have been in it for a long time, and they are certainly willing to help develop those people. But it's brought those partnership partners in. We treat every everyone's a partner in that organization, and that's the philosophy. And it's it's worked really well for us. It's really exciting to see that community grow. We had about 350, 380 at the conference, and and we're expecting probably four plus this year. So it's been great. Where do you see LVN in a couple, in two, three, four years? We'd love to get more engagement on the client side. It's it's memberships free for clients, client corporate legal departments. Come on in. Getting their voice in the room is is our goal. But I mean, we we'd like to be in more regions and talking to people. That's where we're doing roadshows. Is bringing like smaller groups together, not just on a once a year basis, but like trying to develop that network piece within their own communities. I think some have been successful in doing that. I'd say in our in our world, we've seen it, but helping, you know, ensure there's some sort of not legacy, but place people can go, community they can go to either locally or, you know, nationally or internationally beyond that they can reach into. So it's really just making more connections, Stephen, and, and seeing more change, of course, <laughs> driving more change. Of course, that's the goal at the end of the day. The goal Building a better mousetrap. I'll, I'll borrow that from Justin Ergler. He says it all the time. Building a better mousetrap. Well, that's that's a good way to describe it. Well, Christina, thank you very much for the, for the conversation. It's been fascinating. I appreciate your time and willingness to share your thoughts with us. I appreciate the opportunity, Stephen. Great meeting you. And if you have our questions, ask me more and appreciate the time. Absolutely. Thank you. And we'll put some links to Legal Value Network in the show notes so people can connect. And for you, a few clients out there, you heard her say membership's free. LegalValueNetwork.com. Okay. Thanks so much, Stephen. Appreciate the time. 
Thanks for listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Be sure to visit thepioneerpodcast.com for show notes and more episodes. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform.